I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. And we are here to critique the hell out of culture. All right, Seth, welcome back to the King Culture Podcast. I don't know why I'm welcoming you. You're my co-host. Thank you for having me on my podcast. <laughs> exactly. But it's good to be back, and uh, welcome to those of you who are tuning in, maybe for the first time. We're in part two today of, uh, we're not sure how many parts, but it's going to be uh, continuing the conversation we began last time related to your doctoral dissertation. Yeah, it's been pretty fun to try to actually make some of this stuff helpful. It feels pretty abstract when you're writing it, and even in those listeners or people who are going to read it, it tends to uh, remain relatively abstract until the very end when it gets patronizingly practical. <laughs> sure. Uh, so hopefully this is helpful. I think one of your strengths is helping it land and making it clear. And one of my strengths is whatever the opposite of that is. So well, <laughs> we'll a, see. This has been a good <laughs> podcast so far. Yeah. You know, normally I feel like uh, people wouldn't be that interested in a doctoral dissertation. But I think because of the reasons you chose this, you know, of really wanting to help the church and especially help the next generation and parents really kind of think through um, some of the implications of living, living in a digital world and being embodied and all that sort of stuff. This feels like an important conversation to continue. So just remind us, give us again the title of your dissertation. So the big title is Digitization and Neodostism. Okay. With, with the subtitle being um, Generation Z's Bodily effect in light of expanding digital existences. So the big idea is how is the next generation or generation Z in particular, those who are currently adolescents, how is their, how are they growing up with a view of what it means to be human and how it means to have a body in a way that's different than maybe past generations because of their access to screens, smartphones, internet, which is everywhere. So like my generation, yep. sure. like I got a smartphone when I was a freshman in college Okay. So I was still an adolescent. You got a smartphone when you were at freshman college. When did you get a phone? I got a phone. A dumb phone. A dumb phone, yeah, when I was in seventh grade. Okay. And even then, I was one of my last friends to get a phone. Okay. And you were probably then one of your last friends to get a smartphone. Yes. Uh, There's like one kid in my high school who had an iPhone. Yeah. But he was from Europe, so we just thought he was an outlier anyway. So you know, <laughs> Sure. And... At that point, like the droids were kind of more popular. There was a Zune thing happening. Uh-huh. And, but yeah, in, into like the, I was more of an early adopter in the smartphone side of things. Okay. I was probably middle of the road. Whereas nowadays, people who have dumb phones uh, basically are living without running water as far as the <laughs> sure. way society treats them, you know. Yeah, I remember getting a phone, getting a cell phone, I think my senior year of college. It was like a Nokia, a Nokia cell phone. And, um, it was kind of like you'd have it, you'd prepay some minutes, almost like a phone card thing, and it was like in case you needed it while you were traveling or something, you know, that's yeah. sort of what it was. And then, um, man, I, remember I think I was 28 when I got a BlackBerry, and then it was a few years after that that I got a smartphone, or I mean, I guess a BlackBerry is technically a smartphone, but. I remember after 9-11 happened, I was in fifth grade, Okay, and like 10 of my friends got cell phones in that next week. Because their parents want to be able to keep track of them or get hold of them, yeah. Without the school serving as a barrier, right? And it was so I went from like no nobody none of my friends have phones to all of a sudden like ten of my friends had phones, uh-huh. and then I, I didn't get one for another three years. Sure. 
and then I got a phone and I was really excited about it so I could text my friends hi with really <laughs> nothing to say but felt like we had a lot to say. Sure. But it was more about wanting to belong and not having the phone. Yeah. Um, what a lot of people listening, I think the point of this is not to go, boy, you know, when I was a kid, we walked up hill <laughs> both ways, barefoot, you know, on the way to school in a snowstorm. It's really more to say, like, for, for most uh, adults, not all, especially the kind of younger, you know, in their 20s, the millennial generation maybe grew up a bit more with it everywhere. But a lot of us, your age and older, will go, I remember a time when we didn't have it everywhere. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the definitions of Gen Z. There's a sociologist named Jean Twenge. I think that's how you say her name. But she's argued to kind of like, so you have Gen X, and then you have Gen Y, which everyone calls them the millennials because they came of age around the turn of the millennium. You know, yep. Y2K was like a adolescent experience. I remember people panicking about, are the computers going to all turn off or something right. like that? Whereas Gen Z... Uh, a lot of people are arguing they should call it the iGen uh, okay. because they are digital natives. Everyone around them had smartphones from the time they basically had memories. Sure. And unlike my friends, which got cell phones because they were popularizing, most Gen Z parents make a decision to get their kid a smartphone, not because it was recently invented, but because it's been there. Mm -hmm. And uh, they don't get dumb phones first. They go straight to smartphones. Sure. Yep. So the... Like a lot of Gen Zers don't know each, have each other's cell phone numbers. They just Snapchat. So it's more they communicate through the internet on their phone than even the phone itself. Yeah. So that, that is what we're talking about today. So last time, you know, if you want to go back and listen to it, we talked more about the, the neo-docetism part of your dissertation, right? That idea that the docetists were those that believed that Jesus didn't actually appear in a human body. He, 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 he didn't come in a human body. He just appeared to be in a human body. And that there's a kind of neo-docetism that's emerged where we tend to think, uh, I'm not really my body, I'm my psychology, I'm my mind, I'm my thinking. There's a true me somewhere buried within my body, but I'm not my body. And we talked about that, addressed that last time. And so today we really want to push into that other stream of, uh, of technology and digitization. So we've already started to go there, um, but... Um, even that word digitization, I mean, that sounds like, oh, maybe that's just a fancy word you had to put in your <laughs> dissertation title. But I, my sense is that's actually a more strategic word, an intentional word. So what is digitization? Yeah, so digitization, one, it is a hard word to say. At my graduation, the doctor of ethics who had to read my title mispronounced digitization <laughs> which was there's a lot of uh, kind of which sure I, I get it there's a lot of eyes but it's you like, weren't just trying to be fancy it's like trying to spell mississippi you know m-i-s-s-i-s-s-i-p-p-i-d-i-g-i-t-i-z-a-t-i-o-n that's uh anyway there you go i was reading that off my yeah screen. i saw you reading that <laughs> yeah i can't spell that fast sometimes i've had people actually ask me how does seth just remember all these quotes i'm like well he has a computer in front of him while we record this you can't spell the beans <laughs> like that <laughs> come on all right so, what, so, so why that word why why not just technology and neo-docetism so ordin ordinarily yeah. you have like analog as opposed to digital analog is uh tends to refer to kind of mechanics or mechanical right so a, an analog clock has the the whirring things analog watch right um has the hands that move whereas a digital watch has like a there's lights and so digital tends to refer to a f type of technology so 
I had a seminary professor who uh, shan't be named uh, for reasons <laughs> about to become obvious, but he always taught using overhead projections. Okay. Even though um, PowerPoint had existed for like 15 years. Uh, okay. And I remember him talking about how, um, you know, you don't need to use technology to <laughs> to uh, teach effectively in the modern era. Like, and he, he was saying that because he thought uh, overhead projection was not a technology. <laughs> right, sure. But what he, what a lot of people, when they talk about technology, what they really mean is digital technology, okay. which is computer or electronic technology. Yeah, there's a sense in which a hammer is a kind of technology. Yeah, hammer's a technology, paper's a technology, a scroll's a technology, a book's a technology, lights are a technology. So I think a lot of it is uh, in our common usage, we talk about technology, like what do you think about big tech? Sure. Like big technology. And that ordinarily is referring to Silicon Valley, electronic technology, digital, or even like tends to refer to like kind of the electronic mm-hmm. on off thing. Yeah. The thing about light switches, little like at the micro level, an on off switch, like in a typical computer chip, there's, it's just a billion on off switches, you know? So sure. zero one digital most likely refers to that kind of basic function. So when we talk about digitization, we're talking about the explosion of um, digital technology everywhere. So okay. now you have um, smart air conditioning units, you have smart microwaves, you have smart uh, uh, cars, you have smart phones, you have um, smart hearing aids, you have, you know, th- there's sensors everywhere. Um, and so the this idea that things aren't just on or off anymore, but they're active Mm-hmm. And there, there's push notifications. You know, there's receiving sure. of things. Well, I even think like, you know, the majority of us who still watch some sort of TV do it now over the internet, yeah, not over cable. Yeah, right? that's digi- digital technology. That's different. Yeah. Um. So, so it is that pervasiveness is what you're saying. It's not just like, you know, the occasional use of digital technology and neodocetism. It's digitization, digital technology everywhere, yeah. all the time. You can't really get away from it. And it's so pervasive that you often don't even know it's there. Yeah. And so it's digitization is a sociological word. They're saying here is one of the ways society is changing because of um, this phenomena of now everyone has screens connected to the internet all over the place. Yeah. And, and that dynamic is a lot of what we're describing here. So how is, so you and I lived through um, the digitizing process. Yep. Whereas Gen Z came into existence in a digitized world. Sure. So that, yeah, it's funny you mentioned the overhead projectors, you know, my, uh, my oldest daughter especially loves Maverick city music and their recent album is called old church basement. And the whole logo of it is an overhead projector. And they have all these lyric videos on YouTube of their songs where someone is trading out the overhead projector, you know, the little plastic thing. And they were just like, my kids were like, what is that? Yeah, there's probably... Right? And it's gener- like, I can remember that, right? And that was an analog technology, and now we've moved to... They can't imagine a world without PowerPoint and ProPresenter and all yeah. that stuff. We think about a world where uh, if you're going to like make the hand signal of, um, I'm getting on the phone. Uh-huh. Yeah. Millennials or Gen Xers will tend to like do like the hang loose sign, thumb out, right. pinky out, sure. and put it up to their ear, I'm uh-huh. on the phone. Yeah. Whereas uh, millennials tend to just hold up their palm facing their hand away from them. Hmm. So there it's like being on the phone is something you're looking at versus something that's in your ear and your head. Or even I saw like some meme on the internet that was talking about how someone got a floppy drive 
from their computer. <laughs> okay. And someone... Uh, there are people listening who will go, what's a floppy drive? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. And someone had an old floppy drive and uh, their kids saw it and said, did you 3D print the save logo? <laughs> That's great. Because the save logo right? is the logo of a floppy drive. But if you grew sure. up with digital technology everywhere right? and screens and internet and the cloud, like yeah. a floppy drive is nothing but a 3D printed save logo. And so just some of that dynamic. Um, but so much of thinking about technology and going back to my professor who said, I don't need to use technology. I think one of the things we need to think about as we consider technology is uh, the way that we um, misunderstand it or resist it. Uh, a lot of Christians uh, tend to be more conservative in general because there's one of the things I found is uh, younger Christians, like in their teens and twenties, tend to be more progressive, mostly because they're they're like heart breaks for their friends who have left the faith, um, or they're really like connected relationally to non Christians, and there's like this overwhelming sense of pain that they feel like they still love Jesus, but they're also like um, partly trying to distance themselves from their parents as they um, psychologically individuate or differentiate. And sure. they're going, I'm my own person. I'm not my parents. Um, and so they tend to be a little more progressive in their teens and 20s. But then into their late 20s, 30s, and 40s, they tend to have like a conservative swing because now rather than the main thing they're heartbreaking for being their non-Christian or struggling friends, now the main thing their heart's breaking for is their children Sure. in the world they're growing up in. So it tends to be kind of like a swing back mm-hmm. um, just in terms of general flinch. Yeah, you're not talking here about, you know, partisan political issues necessarily. Yeah. You're just talking what, about just kind of a sensibility. Yeah, so even like I would describe like a flinch towards technology, being like it's fine, adopt it, use it. Right. That tends to be the flinch in your teens and 20s. Sure. Whereas by the time you get to your late 20s, you have children or 30s or 40s, there tends to be like a, whoa, hold, hold on this technology is changing us and I'm not sure if it's all for good. Yeah. Uh, I don't want my kids to grow up in this world where there's internet pornography everywhere. Like there's oxygen everywhere. Right. Um, and there tends to be a, you kind of pump the brakes on your own technology use and other people's technology use. Um, but trying to understand like that kind of mixed nature of technology makes things better and it makes things worse at the same time Mm. is difficult for a lot of people to inhabit. But when you put technology and digital technology in particular into the creation story and you see it biblically, a lot of the tension that exists begins to make sense. Hmm. Okay, well then let's go there. So, uh, I mean, this is where I th- I, if I'm hearing what you're saying, I think we kind of want to go, was digital technology good or bad, right? Is it is it of Satan or is it of God? And, and the creation story is always going to help us kind of go, well, there's some creational good in it. And there's some corruption because of sin, so why don't we why don't we go there? Yeah, so going the the big kind of text on on uh, the concept of uh, technological development has to do with the word subdue and dominion in the new in the Old Testament Genesis one. Um, God creates male and female. He calls them to be fruitful and multiply, which is explicitly about family and sex. And then he calls them to be fruitful and or he calls them to subdue and have dominion, which is explicitly about vocation. And so you kind of see like the two big things that still dominate most people's lives nowadays are like on the one side, sex, family, children, on the other side, work and career um, work career. And so that that's a creational deal. Those four words, fruitful, multiply, subdue, dominion. And so the word subdue comes from 
like the concrete use of it has to do with like kneading bread. Mm -hmm. Um, There's another use where it's like treading grapes. So like the feet are subduing the grapes and turning it into wine. So it's, it's a creative pressure. It's forcing, it's creating, um, it's unfolding. And even St. Augustine um, talked about this idea, how God infolded possibility into creation and how the work of subduing and having dominion is unfolding the seeds that God put there. That's a really cool idea. Yeah. So there's infolding and then there's unfolding. Mm. And so this creational unfolding is the process of um, development, culture making, in particular technological development. And so the idea of like, in order to subdue a field, you have to make a plow. In order to subdue the grapes, you have to create a wine press. And so those are all technologies that humans use. And even that use of technology, you know, you have some instances of like apes using sticks to eat like ants or whatever, but it's actually like the use of technology that differentiates humans from the vast majority of the rest of the animal kingdom. Sure. Um, and obviously there's other things that differentiate humans, but actually technology and use of technology and the creation of technology and abstract technologies is part of what makes us human. And that was part of the subdue and have dominion piece. So that makes us go, okay, technology is, is not in almost every instance, just universally bad. Yeah, I do think that the order of the creation story would make us a first flinch positive people on mm-hmm. technology. Okay. Right. So when Moses is writing the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, um, he's doing so post-Egyptian slavery. Like sin is everywhere. It's bad. They basically just suffered under the oppressive use of um, technological rule. Sure. Um you know, being forced to make bricks without straw. So they're actually being removed certain aspects of technological use because the Egyptians taking away technology is making work harder. But then when God is retelling the creation of the world through Moses, he begins with creational good. Yeah. And so rather than being first flinch, technology is bad. I do think the creation story goes, it's good, Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis 3. And so I think a first flinch should be like, wow, look at this beautiful piece of technology that humans are creating. Sure. Recognizing that there will, with a high degree of certainty, be negative ramifications also. Mm-hmm. That well, I think even, I mean, you just mentioned Genesis 3. I think, you know, Adam and Eve, they eat this forbidden fruit. They don't trust God. And one of the next kinds of technology they develop is clothes, right? Yeah. They develop fig leaves to wear as, you know, some underoos or something. Yeah. And uh, as a way of trying to hide their shame, trying to deal with their shame. Yeah. Trying to, so there's a sense in which like, that's a technology. Yeah. So I want want to come back to that, but one, okay. So one of the things I just want uh, us and our listeners to really think about is one of the things Neil Postman talks about is how uh, we have this unhealthy understanding of old technologies, not counting as technology. They talk about overhead projections. Hmm. Like, uh, we tend to think about digital screens or technology because they're new, but cars, clocks, newspapers, calendars, those don't count, hmm. right? And so thinking through, like, the invention of the clock, <laughs> how did that affect and change society? Well, all of a sudden now there's, like, uh, wow. a time, huh? like, see you at 4 p.m. for the meeting or come over for dinner. Dinner is at 6 p.m., like, Right. Wow. Before, yeah. I've never thought about that. Before the clock, you couldn't do that. You sure. know, before the, the accounts, like there's, there's all of this, uh, and you could argue, and there's a lot of cultures that 
are not really time bound. They're event bound. Hmm. Think about how, um, like baseball versus basketball. Sure. Right. You're a baseball guy. Yeah. I'm, I'm a basketball guy. Yep. Um, I do think that baseball has like, there's two words for time in the uh, new Testament Greek. One is Kairos and one is Kronos. Kronos is like uh, clock time. What time is it? Whereas Kairos is event time. Okay. And so like in baseball, uh, it's over when all the events happen. Sure. Yeah. When there's been 27 outs on each side, the game's over. Yeah. Yeah. The nine innings, yep. three outs, each team. And if the game takes, I mean, I don't know what the shortest baseball game ever was. I'm sure there's like a, a record for sure an hour and a half or something like that. And there's, I know there's been longest games ever. Oh yeah. And they go on for, well, that's the big challenge right now in baseball is people are going, this takes too long. How do we speed the game up? How do we make it go faster? How do we get the pitchers to pitch more frequently? How do we have less, fewer pitching changes? Because we got to get this thing going. Because we're a Kronos, we're a Kronos culture. Yeah. So baseball is a Kairos. It's event based. Whereas in basketball, it's like when the time's up, the time's up. Right. And obviously, if there's ties, whatever, you go to something else. But so think about imagine if there's no clocks. How would that change the way you lived your life? In a lot of ways, it would be better. And then, probably even more ways it'd be worse. It'd be way less effective, way less productive, way less able to connect with people easily. Sure. Cause you'd have to like have one appointment a day, maybe two. I, everything is a, as a church. When would you meet? Yeah. Right. Like we spend like a decent amount of time going, when should our service times be? And if we're going to add a service, what time should it be? Right. Yeah. We would have <laughs> You'd be like, one. We're going to have one when, some people show up and then yeah, we'd have a morning one we'd say and then we'd have maybe an evening one right <laughs> and it'd be like i think about 80 percent of the people are here here we go you know and, and, right. and so there's a lot of ways to get worse a lot of ways to get better but we have to think about all these things and how they affect and change society as technological development and not just think about new new things as as technology yeah that's good so and i think that's creational right some of that like god invented the world with, you know, uh, the possibility of clocks being invented, mm. right? And whether it's like those things that track the sun or the sundial things, you know, mm-hmm. or it's um, an analog mechanical one or a digital one, you know, there's, he created this possibility there and sure. the unfolding of that. And so this is what you talk about, like the ecological development of technology, like technology changes the environment. Mm. The Makes sense. You know, you invent the car, now there's less horses, you know, you invent the clock, now there's service times. You you invent the smartphone, and now you're everywhere and you're nowhere. Sure. And you're all of a sudden tempted to take pictures of lots of things you never gave two rips about taking pictures of sure. five years ago. And so it changes the ecology or the environment. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm going, you know, I'm going tonight up to uh, Cave Creek to have dinner with some friends. And I've never been to their house. Um, and it's like... <laughs> I mean, think about the logistics I'd have to do, you know, 15 years ago to figure out how to get to their house versus now I go, I'm not even worried about it. I'll just get in the car, put in the address, away I'll go. Yeah. You would have previously had to spend 20 minutes wrapping your head around the map Yeah, in an unfamiliar area. Yeah. So now there's a whole, in this case, simplified ecology, you know, like I don't, here's a whole category of stuff I don't have to think about. So that's nice. And you have Tinder. <laughs> sure. I can go to anybody's well, house. I don't have Tinder. Yeah. But 
Y'all Tinder, Tinder exists. Yeah. Y'all have Tinder. <laughs> Just to be clear. Yeah. Also, <laughs> yeah. So that ecological development as it relates to technology is it just changes society for good and for, yeah. I think for mostly good, but for also bad is sure. I think more of like the Genesis 1 and 2 plus Genesis 3 side of things. Then so we should always be a little bit, I mean, we should always be a little suspicious and we should always be a little bit like, huh, this is an interesting possibility. Yeah, I think because our society is so pro-technology, Christians should be um, pretty loud about the, but what are the negative consequences of this technology? Yeah. Just because most people tend to not ask that question. Sure. Just tend to say like, well, and especially the people driving it aren't yeah, asking there's, that question. Yeah, there's never going to be an Apple's not asking that question. Yeah, or if they are, they're not putting in their marketing commercials. Sure. You know, they're not going, here's all the new things that iPhone 12 can is going to do. Um, but well, I thought also, it was interesting recently, maybe we we're going to talk about this, but I mean, this isn't scripted, so here we go. But I remember uh, just recently I've seen stuff where it's like, there's been a push to create Instagram for kids and lots of different organizations, even non-Christian ones have gone, this is a bad idea. Like this is really not good. Yeah. And so maybe we'll talk about why that is. But. <laughs> I just listened to an interview with, uh, uh, I think his name is Robert Walters, the lead singer of, um, uh, Pink Floyd. Okay. Roger Walters. That's his name. I don't know. I'm not, I can't fact check you on that one. <laughs> but, you know, another brick in the wall. All in all, it's just another brick in the wall. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg asked if they could use that song in their uh, Instagram, Facebook promotion. And the guy's basically like, F you, Mark Zuckerberg, and your big tech tyranny trying to push hmm. more of this. And, you know, yeah. the guy's not even close to being a Christian. But there is like this, all of a sudden within culture, like this. Um, this big tech thing is getting out of hand and I'm not going to be participating in it even sure. if I off am offered huge amounts of money. Yeah. So there's that, but a big, one of the, one of the other dimensions is what we call like the ecological development, how technologies change society. But there's also another dimension, what I would call the epistemological development, how it changes the way we think and the way we feel. Okay. So think back to, uh, early in the Americas before cameras were popular, uh, probably for the first 12 to 25 presidents we had, nobody even knew what they looked like. Hmm. All you had was newspapers. So did people know what George Washington looked like or how tan or old he looked? No, not at all. And so what you had for a long time was what you call a text-based society that as early as, you know, maybe 8,000 years ago, you have the development of writing. And so for about 7,700 years, <laughs> humans were a pretty text-based mm -hmm. culture where there was reading and there was writing. Yep. And that was the preeminent way that we communicated about world events and history, things like that. Obviously, like the Bible, um, mm -hmm. but ancient documents. Like people have, like unless someone made a sculpture, but then there's like one of them. Right. Right. So very few ancient people do even have a clue of what they looked like. But even as recently in American history, which is not that old, people didn't know what these people looked like. Um, and it really wasn't until um, photography became really popular that you begin to like care what people looked like. Mm. And all of a sudden now, like the last presidential election, like the amount of times I heard about what Donald Trump looked like sure, was insane. But even going back to um, then you had writing and all of a sudden you had radio and now mm -hmm. you cared what people sounded like. So first it was sure. like it used to be preeminent what people's thoughts were, mm -hmm. right? The rhetoric was 
reduced to their writing. Sure. But now you have radio, and so people, you can hear them. Yep. Does their voice calm me? How is their power, their enunciation, their dictation, you know? and Right. Or their diction, not their dictation. And you had to, you'd hear people, you'd hear debates, you'd listen to speeches. You wouldn't read speeches, you'd hear them. So you go from a text-based to a audio-based, but that didn't last very long. But then there's this huge kind of movement, especially like in um, one of Richard Nixon's campaigns. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's he running against? It's embarrassing. I don't know this because I'm. Are you I, talking about the debate with him and JFK? Yeah, and it was like people who listened to it thought right. thought Nixon won. Thought Nixon won, but people who watched it on thought TV, JFK yeah. won. Right, because Nixon looked so bad and sweaty yep. and anxious. Mm-hmm. Yep. But so people who heard it thought experienced it one way. Experience one way. People who watched it experienced another way. Sure. And so this is a lot of what um, ends up happening is the pivot of television changes. Now you're watching, not just listening, and you're not reading. And so you end up having an image-based view of things. Sure. That being said, what ends up happening is Neil Postman describes this as what he calls politics as show business. <laughs> Meaning, that sounds familiar. Yeah. This is, he wrote this book, um, um, Amusing Ourselves to Death, in 1980. This is way before the internet was even a popular, remotely popular or plausible. Uh, now, instead of thinking, you just are entertained. And so in entertainment, when something is boring, you disengage. And so attention spans go down. And in entertainment, what makes something good is whether it makes you laugh or it resonates or it keeps you engaged. So now all of a sudden, public thought process is reduced to can it keep and hold my attention? This is like the early beginnings of like soundbite culture. Sure. Where you're not thinking deeply, you're not listening closely, but now you're just being entertained mm-hmm. and the reduction of everything to show business matters. And so what ends up happening is um, entertainment is more about resonance. Does it connect with me or does it not connect with me? And so the way that people start deciding if things are true or false is do they resonate? Mm. Because if something resonates, then you keep watching it and you like it. And so most of the time now when people agree with something or disagree with something, what they're really saying is, I like it or I don't like it. Yeah. They haven't really right. thought about it. They've felt about it. They've had a reaction. Mm-hmm. And so this reduction of thought process or epistemology, how do you know it's true or false, is more about a gut sense of, I like it, I don't like it. People read or th- see things and they either connect with it and therefore they think it's true or they don't connect with it and therefore they think it's false. I've had a number of people say like, that's confusing to me, so I disagree. <laughs> yeah. Right. So if something doesn't immediately immediately make sense or immediately resonate, I reject it. I don't like it. Huh. I don't want sure. it. Whereas possibly in the past when something was confusing, that would be an indicator of I have more work to do. Right. Now something being confusing equals I don't like it. I disagree. Yeah, because technically you can't disagree with something you don't even understand. Yeah. You don't un- you don't know well enough to disagree. But if if it's not based on understanding it, it's based on resonating with it, then sure, I can disagree with all kinds of stuff that I don't know about. Yeah, so again, epistemological development, God somehow in his wisdom decided that attraction and beauty would be a part of thought process, Mm -hmm. right? Because God is beautiful. And so there's something captivating about God that you see him as beautiful and you trust him, right? So aesthetics and um, entertainment I mean, aesthetic is like a, does it, is it a, a yeah. pe- appealing to the eye or, or, or uh, the way you consider it like that. So to some degree, God being beautiful makes us want to trust him and listen to him. Sure. Right. And so art matters, mm-hmm. but if 
beauty becomes the only aspect in good, true, and beautiful. And now you have just beauty trumping. We have a society right now where beauty trumps goodness and truth. Sure. Because it's all about entertainment. And does it, do I like looking at it? If so, then it's true, Mm -hmm. which is not truth. Or if I like looking at it, then it's good. What's interesting just even as you say that, because where my mind goes is, you know, I'll often have times where I'm reading the gospels and I'll read Jesus say something. And then I think, I wonder how he said it. Like if I could have heard this, how would it have sounded? And then I think, well, I wonder what the look on his face was like. And it's interesting I don't, I don't want to make too much of this, but I maybe don't want to not notice it, that God could have sent Jesus into a time when we could have had YouTube videos of Jesus. Yeah, he like, could have waited 2,000 years, and we'd have footage of Jesus. Yeah, and for some reason, he didn't do that. Yeah, and there's a lot Which of Which is not, I don't necessarily think to say that the written word is inherently then better than video. But that's just interesting to me. Yeah, there's this is one of the Neil Postman makes that point. He's like somehow the God of the Jews in his wisdom decided to enter into history during a time when text was the preeminent disseminator of history. He could have waited, but he didn't. Yeah. He wanted a God who wrote things on tablets and who wrote things through the hand of people. And I think Do you have any hypothesis about that? I mean I I have speculation. I think yeah, part that's what of I mean. Part of the, uh, I think if you have a Jesus who is the leader of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and translating text is often more objective than translating speeches, hmm. right? Because you're because you have to translate more when you're trying to like translate a speech. You have to like disposition and tone and mm-hmm. loud, quiet, soft things. So. Texts aren't easy to translate, but they're easier to translate um, than that. And I think if we knew exactly what Jesus looked like, there'd be this kind of weird idol worship hmm. thing that'd be a problem. And I do think that the the pattern of God's character does align more with the culture that text-based worlds create. There's an unhurriedness. There's a, kind of an inability to overly simplify things. There's a There's a slowness. There's a a silence to it. And so, so there's a variety of aspects of text-based culture that I think are better than visual-based culture. I think God picked that for some reason. And that's purely speculative. Um, but even like when you start getting into like the aspects of the creation narrative that when you get into the fall, yeah, right. One of the things is you have Adam or you have a, a Cain killing Abel and Jewish tradition says that he used iron, up iron, iron plowing instrument. So you, okay. So if technology was good, the plow was good. Now all of a sudden you have the creation of the first weapon. Yeah. Uh, which happens in Genesis. It doesn't happen in the Bible, but Jewish tradition in the book of Jasher talks about how he used a weapon. Um, then what ends up happening is you have humans building in Genesis 11. Um, you know, houses, buildings are technology and they're using technology to build those buildings and they create a tower, the Tower of Babel, mm-hmm. which is opposed to God. So you right away have technology going astray and so a huge trend, even what you see, is that God punishes uh, these people for building power to Babel by scattering them and disconnecting them. And so this pastor wrote a book called Analog Church named um, Jay Kim, talked about how uh, the disconnection as a result of disordered technology use goes back to Genesis chapter 11, hmm. that instead of these people banding together to serve God's purpose in the world, to be fruitful and to multiply, subdue and have dominion, 
God scatters them over the face of the earth because they refuse to come up under him. And so disordered use of technology, disconnecting people from other people and from themselves is as old as Genesis 11. So you've given us a good sense of kind of the, the biblical framework to think through technology and digital technology, especially. But what's interesting in these days now is this kind of, like we've said, pervasive digital technology where, you know, you've kind of said the whole society is, is technological in this sense. So what does that, I mean, what are the implications of that? I mean, I I know a big part of your dissertation was researching, you know, what is that doing to humanity in general, but to Gen Z in particular? Yeah, so Oliver O'Donovan described us as being a technological society, which means that we presume a technological solution for every human problem. Hmm. So it's this big assumption of, oh, here's a problem. Let's develop a technology to solve it. Uh, There's never... man that. That's so true. Like I thought about when I first got an Apple Watch, which I don't have or use anymore, and I've asked people not to buy me because it's is is like the man I'm on my phone too much. Oh, if I get an Apple Watch, <laughs> that'll help me be on my phone less, right? right? Which ends up just getting on your phone more because it pings you, and then you right. do the thing. And so, um, likewise, we have technology intervening in all types of places where it doesn't belong, uh, whether it's like. Um, changes to gender and sexuality or reproduction process. There's just all these um, inserting t- of technologies into places that ought to be relatively inappropriate. Um, so he, t- he describes as a technological society. Um, another French philosopher, Calvinist guy named Jacques Ellul, um, he talked about the technological imperative. There's this feeling that we have to keep intervening. We are just assuming that um, there must be a participation in the technological mis- machine and process. If we're going to be economically successful, we have to just keep doing it. So there's an assumption we have to keep doing it. Yeah, that feels like the, I mean, the whole sort of secular humanist assumption is progress Progress is going to happen, and it is inevitable, and it is coming through science and technology and education. Yeah, and so then a tech philosopher guy named Egbert Sherman has had this quote, which I really appreciate. He said, we're trying to solve the problems that technology has created with technology by the same means and the same methods that have called them into being in the first place. Hmm. The solutions are part of the problem. Like trying to solve technology problems with technology is like just this downward spiral of things. And so one of the things you argue is we need to put technology back into the story of the Bible, which is the structure and direction and good and bad. And I think about how even the person of Jesus, the way that he, like the means by which he dies for our sin. Hmm. Right, so... Um, Meaning a cross? Yeah. The cross is technology. Hmm. It was engineered process by the Romans to make death as shameful and sufferable as possible. And you have, like, the tree, which is, like, the symbol of life in the Old Testament. You know, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who yeah. walks not according to counsel of the wicked, nor stands with sinners, nor sits in the sea of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He's like a tree. It's mm. planted by a stream of water. And so this tree is like the symbol for life in Genesis 1 and in Psalm 1, or Genesis 2 and in Psalm Psalm 1. And here you have disordered, power-hungry state taking the symbol of life and turning it into a symbol of death, mm. um, carving it out. Um, you have uh, them engineering uh, with like a whip made of several pieces of leather that they used bone and lead embedded near the end. Mm. Right. On these leather strips. So you have leathers technology, iron metal metals technology, using bones as cutting instruments as technology. And they whip him and they flog him with it. Um, then they make something um, out of a thorns. They make mm. a crown. 
Hmm. That's technology. You know, it's yeah. artistic. Like it's a, it's designed, it's crafted. It's a, it's a piece of irony. Like, sure. it, like it's a, uh, so it's both technology and it's art in the way that it is a, offensive hmm. and meant to be. And they, um, they twisted together and then they made something from wool and they wove it together and they dyed it in purple and they put this robe on him. And then he um, is hammered with nails that they extracted from the ground and melted together. And the hammer is like the original piece technology we talked about earlier. Right. And so Jesus, like the way that he's murdered is actually by disordered use of technology. Hmm. And so he absorbs into himself human sinful technological use, literally and figuratively. And so even like a lot of th- scholars describe this as like sadistic ingenuity. Um, and they write a sign, which yeah. language is technology, right? You know, here's the king of the Jews. Um, and then they, they put a sponge technology, immerse it in wine, um, which is probably cleaning wine, and shove it in his face as a sign. And they use a spear with technology to verify his death, piercing him in the side. And so you have like this creator being murdered by the creation's creations. Huh. Wow. Thing that happens. And so when I think about even our use of technology, there's this sinful effect of it that we propagate when we use our bodies to get attention um, by means of semi-innocently on Instagram or more corruptively through creation of pornography, like sexting, things like that, or um, cyberbullying, whatever it is. There's all these ways that humans use technology for evil. Sure. The pinnacle of which that humans use technology for evil is the murder of God. Uh, and this is part of the reason why so much of like postmodernism started to happen was people placed all this hope and energy and technology is going to usher in uh, this secular humanist utopia. Then you have the great war in world war two and you realize that um, one of the no. main things our technology has done is just made us really effective at killing each other. Yeah. And so some of the postmodern reaction to modernism is healthy in that it's undermining this technology of save the world narrative. Um, there's a lot of things in postmodernism, which is, total garbage, but like that aspect of maybe technology won't save us. But then there's this whole resurgence now, like we talked about at the end of last episode of actually technology is going to make us immortal because we're going to upload our brains and things like that. And so as we as Christians engage with technology and we have a lot more to talk about regarding social media, digital technology and our healthy use and our unhealthy use of that. I do think like recognizing the way the gospel of Jesus in his incarnation, in his death that was explicitly accomplished through technology does affect the way we view this, mm-hmm. that there is some sense in which um, Christ died so that I can be a healthy user of creation and not a disordered user of creation. Mm. Yeah. So there's an aspect in which wow. we, we get to now by the spirit taste some of what Adam was supposed to do, which is be fruitful and multiply, subdue and have dominion uh, w- without having to be um, oppressed by our creations in the way that uh, apart from Jesus, we have to be. Yeah. Well, man, I think that's a great place to wrap it up. And just, uh, man, I appreciate that kind of a reflection, especially that reflection on the cross. I mean, I, just as we're sitting here, I'm feeling moved and, you know, as you describe all those different elements and the thoughtfulness of pulling that out is, is really encouraging. I think maybe next time what we'll do is, is talk more about what are the effects on us as people? What are the effects, especially on, on teenagers, Gen Z, what do parents need to be thinking about as it relates to these different things? Um, I don't know exactly where we'll go, but somewhere in that direction. So uh, this has been great, man. Uh, once again, I just, I appreciate your work and I appreciate you 
being willing to share some of it with us and help us, you know, uh, be better equipped because golly, this technology thing ain't going anywhere. And, uh, I feel like you're either going to have some control of it or it's going to have control of you. And, um, yeah. So thanks. Yeah, absolutely. That whole, that whole thing with Adam and Eve, even with Adam is led astray by the serpent, you know, we're called to have dominion over creation, but too often creation has dominion over us. Yeah. And I think technology is a great example of that. So hopefully next time we'll be a little more practical on what it look like to have dominion over creation in particular, dominion over digital technology. Yeah. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us for the King and Culture podcast. If you uh, know somebody that would be helped by this, uh, let them know about it, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>